You're listening to the Conversations with Kids Peace podcast. Advice, information, and inspiration from experts at the leading provider of mental and behavioral health services for children, adults, and those who love them. Now, here's your host. Hello, and welcome to our podcast series, Conversations with Kids Peace. I'm Bob Martin. The spring-summer edition of Healing Magazine, Kids Peace's flagship publication, is now available online at www.healingmagazine.org. This edition of Healing has a special section marking the 40th anniversary of Kids Peace Foster Care and articles on gender diversity in schools, using comfort boxes for kids in treatment, and a review of a new science fiction novel that explores the impact of mental illness on young people. This edition of Healing, by the way, is the first new issue posted on our redesigned website where you can search for individual articles by issue, topic, or author. Try it out. Let us know what you think. Here's our conversation with two of the contributors to Healing Magazine. The latest issue of Healing Magazine takes a look at foster care from a variety of perspectives, including the history and evolution of that service. Providing that perspective for us in the magazine is Brian Hofstetter, a family resource specialist in Kids Peace Foster Care in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and he joins us now. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bob. Glad to be here. Now, I have to ask personally, what was your reaction when you heard that this year marks the 40th anniversary for Kids Peace providing foster care? Well, it's been hard to believe it's been 40 years because that means I've been with the program almost 30 years. And I try not to think about that. <laughs> it I does sneak up on you. I don't think of myself as getting older. <laughs> but it's been nice um, to take the time to reflect on the many wonderful associates and families that I've had the privilege of working with and knowing over the years. Now, in the Healing Magazine article, you talk about significant changes in foster care happening through the 1970s. Why were those changes necessary at that point, in your in your belief? In the 1970s, um, there was a trend to move away from institutionalization. Um, society realized that we didn't have to deal with problems by locking people away, um, whether that was the orphanages or children's homes or um, mental health asylums. These changes were necessary to address social problems in a more compassionate and healthy manner. With foster care, that meant there was hope for children and families. A parent who was faced with the challenge didn't have to make the choice of losing a child when all they needed was some help to overcome a temporary problem, such as poverty or substance abuse or lack of parenting. For many parents, it was a chance to overcome these challenges without having to place their child at further risk of harm. For children entering foster care, it gave them a safe place within a family setting to grow and develop while maintaining a relationship with the parent. Supervised visits and contact helped to maintain an attachment to parents. For agencies and social service programs, the change challenged them to develop programs to better serve children and families at risk. The first step of the Child Abuse and Prevention and Treatment Act was to have funds available to stop child abuse. And in, in addition to the prevention programs, the ACT helped identify and track child abuse to better determine ways of treatment and prevention. At Kids Peace, we were able to take our objectives from our residential programs and build on these strengths for a family-based model. Our experience in helping children overcome their emotional problems allowed Kids Peace to develop a foster care program that not only provided for a child's physical needs, but also for their emotional development within the context of a family that was supported by our treatment team of professional caseworkers and therapists. So this was truly an evolution. The, the, the changes were basically updating for what was the, the most up-to-date type of understanding of what was going to work and, what, and how to 
balance priorities, which is another thing you talk about in the uh, in in the article, especially in the 1990s. You talk about how uh, changes were beginning to to have this balance between priorities in the society. Can you explain a little bit about what was going on there? It was balanced, but the system continued to be restrained by the changes in society. Um, by 1999, almost 17% of U.S. children, it's over 12 million, lived at or below the federal poverty line. Poverty, poverty also disproportionately affected the growing number of children being raised by single parents. In 1969, 9% lived in a one-parent home. By 1999, almost 29% Wow. Did. That's 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 a, a staggering. So, so poverty severely limited the ability of some families to provide those basic necessities for their children. Um, healthcare was also poor um, for these children. So reports of neglect and child maltreatment grew. The homeless popula population grew, and families with children represented more than a third of the homeless population. So other services weren't able to keep up with the demand. So services for substance abuse treatment, mental health treatment, housing programs. Um, and during this time, too, governments were concerned with their budgets and the need, to, and the need to, to fund these programs. And there was a lot of shift back and forth between is this a federal mandate, is this the state's responsibility? So it was shifting back and forth um, without being able to meet those demands. So the, in the time frame now, and we're talking now over, say, the last 20 years, there's been more of this trying to find clarity as to where, um, where, where the responsibilities lie and the best way to handle the needs of the kids that are involved. There, there still is, yes. <laughs> well, let's let, that brings us to the present day. You bring up an interesting concept in the article called prudent parenting. Can you just briefly explain what that is and why you feel it's important as we talk about foster care today? Reasonable and prudent parenting was a, a real um, um, innovative standard. Uh, it was characterized by the sensible parent, parent decisions uh, that could be made by foster parents to maintain the health, safety, and best interests of a child while encouraging the emotional and developmental growth of the child. What that means is that upon training, foster parents can make decisions to allow a foster child to participate in extracurricular, enrichment, cultural, and, and so, so social activities. It's about giving children a sense of normalcy. So in the past, there were no clear guidelines about who would allow children to do things like travel on vacation, join sports clubs, um, or other recreational activities, go into the community by themselves or with friends, get a cell phone, work a part-time job, get a driver's license, all these things that you know your average child gets to experience. And foster children were kind of restricted by some of that. So with the, the prudent parenting now, um, foster parents can make those choices. And it's important for these children to experience success during childhood to prepare them for adulthood. With the changes, we are seeing long-term benefits to the children. They're being more prepared for independence, going on to college, and removing the stigma of being in foster, being in foster care. Which is basically what we're trying to do in, in all of our programs is try to get is try to prepare that child for a, a happy, productive, successful life by their terms, and removing the stigma of what would it happen to them as a child. Absolutely. From your perspective, you, you've been in this. I won't repeat how long you've been in this, but uh, what do you, from your perspective, what do you see happening in terms of the evolution of foster care in the next, say, five years? 
I see the continued expansion of having to manage with limited fiscal resources, along with accountability by having programs um, be accountable for quality care and treatment of children and families. I think the definition of family will continue to grow as kinship includes even more birth family members and other bonds through the community and neighborhood. Um, and I hope that the adults remain compassionate to the needs of children and families. As always, we ask our guests to offer listeners a life hack. Brian, you have been through this drill before, so what's your life hack today? Okay. Um, I've been reading a lot about um, mindfulness, kind of being in the moment. So my, my hack today is to stop trying to be happy and focus on being happy in the moment. That's awesome. That's, that, that, that's a great one. Brian Hofstetter is a family resource specialist with Kids Peace Foster Care in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and his article, Kids Peace Foster Care at 40, A Historical Perspective, is in the spring-summer 2019 issue of Healing Magazine. Brian, thanks again for your article and for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. In addition to looking at foster care, as Kids Peace marks 40 years of providing that service, the latest issue of Healing Magazine looks at a service line Kids Peace launched just this year. Dual Diagnosis Addictions Treatment uses an innovative tool called the Matrix Model. And in lieu of the actor Keanu Reeves, we have with us Michelle Callahan, Site Supervisor of Kids Peace's Outpatient Program Office in Mount Pocono, PA, one of the locations that will be using the model in addiction treatment. She's also the author of the Healing Magazine article on the Matrix Model. Michelle, welcome back to our podcast. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me back. To get started here, can you describe sort of in general terms what the Matrix Model is and what it's designed to do uh, in a therapeutic sense? Sure. So actually, um, Chris Ferry, our executive director, was uh, researching different models um, to use in this new program. Um, and he came across this. And uh, when I started to, to read about it, I, I really liked it. Um, so the, the matrix model was developed actually back in the 1980s um, during the height of the cocaine epidemic. Um, and the, the matrix clinic was uh, opened in Los Angeles. And through research, um, it was deemed to be what we call a evidence-based model um, to effectively treat substance use disorders. Um, and through more research, it was um, deemed what we call evidence-supported to treat other substance use disorders. Um, and this is uh, through a intensive outpatient program, um, which is what we'll be offering um, here at Kids Peace. Um, so the other thing that's really great about the matrix model is, you know, it's evidence-based itself, but it also uses other evidence-based models. Um, so, you know, a lot of people have heard of, you know, we call it CBT, um, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, uh, Motivational Interviewing, or MI, and uh, Contingency Management. Um, and that reinforces, you know, progress, um, good attendance, and, and use of the model. Um, and actually, in the words of the matrix model, their goal is to uh, provide stabilization, abstinence, maintenance, and relapse prevention. As a therapist, co coming from that perspective... Um, is there a main advantage that you see in terms of using the matrix model when you're treating individuals who might be struggling with addiction? Yeah, so there's actually a couple things. Um, so the first thing is uh, the matrix model, you know, one of the most important things is the relationship between the therapist and the client. So this is like one of the primary treatment dynamics of the model. And it really like fosters the a therapist be more of a combination of a, you know, a teacher, coach, and just a concerned human being, you know, rather than being in like a authoritative figure. Um, and, you know, 
a lot of people who are, you know, in DNA services have, you know, probation officers, and, and that's the kind of um, relationships they have. So, you know, not having that kind of dynamic, I think it makes it easier um, to build rapport. Um, it keeps the, you know, the client in services longer. And it also promotes, like, a, you know, a safe place for them to talk about their substance abuse issues in a, in a non-judgmental context. I mean, stigma is, you know, still very... Um, you know, much a problem in, you know, mental health, but even more so in drug and alcohol. Um, another thing is um, it really emphasizes uh, incorporating the family into treatment. I know this is a little more um, common now in, in, you know, mental health and drug and alcohol services than it was in the past. So one of the things the Matrix model offers is uh, what we call conjoint family education group. And this is where the clients and the family members are actually in the same group together um, getting the same psychoeducation, you know, at the same time. And we often find that, um, you know, family members don't understand, you know, the disease of addiction and, and you know, they don't know how to help their loved one um, or they might be even, you know, even believe that they're enabling them. So, you know, one of the things we do um, using the family education group is, you know, teach them how to remediate by providing support for the client. Um, and we've also seen that, you know, engaging family members um, in treatment will also help with retention of the client. Um, another great uh, advantage and opponent to the matrix model is what uh, is called the social support groups. So, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, someone needs to learn is, you know, how to be able to socialize with people outside of the people they are affiliated with um, in regards to their addiction. You know, you hear us saying things like, you know, you got to avoid your people, places, and things. Well, you know, that's that is true. You know, there's lots of different triggers and, you know, sometimes they don't even know what a healthy relationship is and we have to teach them that. And this is, you know, this group is kind of the start of that. Um, being, you know, the lowest level of care at this point, you know, they're going out there and they're, you know, fully in the community, um, probably doing their, you know, their 12-step meetings. Um, the other thing, like I started to mention before, is uh, the use of the other evidence-based models, right? So CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, and motivational interviewing. So we know this is, you know, highly successful in training um, both mental health and substance abuse. So, um, you know, CBT helps us to change the, the client's thinking that promotes their, you know, their substance use uh, or their ongoing substance use. And, you know, with the matrix model, um, there's lots of different groups that are offered, and every single group, you know, comes with a structured goal in mind, and it has some kind of a, um, a CBT component within. Um, and then with motivational interviewing, you know, we know that this is, uh, you know, a, a therapeutic intervention that works really well with um, highly resistant clients. Um, and in, um, you know, mental health and, and drug and alcohol service, we can often have um, resistant clients, especially if they're court-ordered. So using motivational interviewing kind of helps us to work the clients through what we call the stages of change and, you know, hopefully get them to what we call like an action stage to actively um, work on their issues. Um you know, sometimes they need to be prepared before they can get to that point. Um, so those are just a couple of the, you know, the advantages of using the matrix model from a, you know, a therapist standpoint. Now, you mentioned in your article, you, you've talked about cognitive behavioral therapy or uh, CBT, um, but you mentioned that one area that it's particularly meaningful for is dealing with the issue of um, a person with an addiction relapsing. What's the situation there? How how is that helpful? So yeah, when it comes to relapse, the thing is, you know, we clients actually relapse way before they ever actually pick up the substance. So, 
and this is evident in our thought process. Um, you know, we know CBT teaches us that our thought process influences our thoughts and feelings, which uh, in response influences behaviors and choices that we make. So using CBT actually allows us to teach clients just this. You know, relapse is not a random event, and they can learn the warning signs of their, you know, their faulty thinking that will lead to a relapse, and we can help them change their thinking to become, um, you know, more recovery-oriented. Um, one of the things the matrix model has is what's called a, uh, a relapse analysis chart. So this is an exercise um, that's used when clients unexpectedly, or, you know, at least they think it's unexpectedly relapsed, or there's someone who maybe chronically relapses, and they don't understand the, you know, the cause or the, the context of the relapse. So using this uh, this chart and CBT helps the therapist kind of understand more the context of the relapse and then help them to re- the client reframe the re-event um, with the goal of avoiding future relapses. So when I say reframe, I mean kind of shift their thinking from, oh, you know, this is a, you know, this is a failure. You know, I had been sober for the last six months and, you know, now I'm not. You know, this was for nothing. Um, but rather looking at it like a need for adjustment in their treatment plan. Yeah, so, you know, we're not going to discount the last six months of sobriety you had just based on this one day. Um, you know, that's what we call that, like, you know, all or nothing thinking. Um, and that's kind of the thinking we're trying to shift them away from. It definitely um, and that's sounds... that's why I think CBT is so important. Yeah, it definitely sounds like um, taking it to sort of another dimension there. And um, it's it's just, it's very meaningful, and, and the article is great, and you did a great job with it. Um, Michelle, you've been through this drill before with us, so you know that we ask all our guests to offer a, uh, listeners a life hack. So what's your life hack today? So um, usually when I do podcasts, my good friend Adrian is with me. Um, so I look to her for some guidance on my life hack. Um, and she said I should kind of keep with the Matrix scheme. Um, so she actually uh, gave me a good one from the movie, and it is uh, the real test for any choice is having to make the same choice again, knowing fully well what it might cost. And I thought this was good because I think it speaks to, you know, the daily struggle our clients face who are being treated for substance use disorders. You know, some days are better than others, but the hardest part is continuing to make that conscious choice, you know, work the program and try and maintain being in recovery. And we know that, you know, easier said than done, and there's a lot of, you know, a lot at stake every day when they wake up every morning and, you know, hoping to make that conscious choice not to pick up a drug or a drink that day. Um, and every day that they don't is a win and a, you know, and a step in the right direction, and, you know, they deserve to be acknowledged for that. Um, so I'm giving Adrian credit for that one. Well, I tell you, I don't think Keanu could have said it any better. Um, Michelle Callahan is site supervisor of Kids Pieces Outpatient Office in Mount Pocono, Pennsylvania. Her article on the development and use of the matrix model in treating addiction is in the Therapist Corner section of the spring-summer 2019 issue of Healing Magazine. Michelle, thanks again for your article, and it's always a pleasure to have you join us on the podcast. Thanks, Bob. Our thanks to Michelle, Brian, and all the contributors to the latest edition of Healing Magazine. Remember, you can subscribe, download an electronic copy, and now access individual articles in this and past issues, all at the new www.healingmagazine.org. We have an exciting announcement about Healing Magazine for those of you who live in or near the Lehigh Valley area of Pennsylvania. We've reached agreement with the Barnes & Noble Bookstore at the Promenade Shops in Center Valley, Pennsylvania, to have them offer healing in their magazine area. It's the first time the magazine has been available in a retail setting. We're going to be celebrating this partnership at a special event on Saturday, June 15th, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the store. 
We'd love to have you come by. You'll be able to meet with some of the contributors, talk with folks about Kids Pieces foster care and autism programs, and there'll be coloring time and other activities for kids during the event. That's Saturday, June 15th, at the Barnes & Noble store at the Promenade Shops in Center Valley, Pennsylvania. Hope to see you there. The Conversations with Kids Peace podcast is produced by Robbie Allred. I'm Bob Martin. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to have you join us again for more Conversations with Kids Peace. Take care. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions about our Conversations podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Go to www.kidspeace.org to learn more about the series and share your thoughts.